Our scripture for today is John 18, chapters 1 through 11, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom gave him, who gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants, servant and cut his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup from the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. How are you guys? Good. Well, my name is Brandon High. It's a, it's a privilege for me to be here with you guys. I got to point out something, though. John, thanks for praying earlier this morning, and I got to say I love your style. You and I got, we kind of got the same kind of shirt going on, so, man, I just, I noticed that. I got, I'm going to have to get, catch you afterwards and figure out where you got that thing. Uh, but, man, it's a joy to be here with you guys. Uh, like I said, my name is Brandon High. I have the privilege of serving as an elder and a pastor at Frontline Edmond, and God crossed Tim and I's path about seven years ago now, and when my wife and I, when my wife Molly and I uh, came to Frontline Edmond, I met Tim, I met a bunch of the other leaders there, and we just felt called to be a part of helping plant that church right there in Edmond, Oklahoma. And at the time, I was working in college ministry, and then eventually I ended up working in construction for a few years before becoming a pastor at at Frontline Edmond. And I'm really grateful for Tim, really grateful for his family. I mean, he invested in me and in my wife and his time while they were in Oklahoma. And soon after coming to Frontline, he led my wife and I into leading a community group. And man, God had really used the, the community group ministry to really shape and change our marriage, really shape and change our lives. And we've seen so many wonderful things happen in the context of community. So I'm really grateful for the Kimberly family. I mean, really grateful again to be here with you guys. I want to invite you to to pray for me as we dive into this text, and I want to pray for you as well. Father, thank you so much for this morning. God, I am, I'm grateful just to get to worship uh, with brothers and sisters in a different state, in a different town, and it's it's amazing that the gospel is, is, is true, and that the gospel has has penetrated our hearts and is changing us and is shaping us. And so, God, I, I pray that this morning would not be just a mere information dump to my friends, but God, that your word would, would indeed transform us. God, I, I, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be working and speaking to us, and God, I, I pray that if I say things that are unhelpful, God, you would help my friends forget, but if I say things uh, that are helpful, God, you would help them to stick, and you would do a work in each of our hearts this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This, so this is my family. I got a picture 
Here they are. So I've been married for 10 years. Uh, my wife in the middle there, her name is Molly. We have an eight-year-old daughter who's kind of in the back right there. Her name is Lucy. We have identical twin girls, one in the glasses and one down below that's Hattie and Cora. And then we rolled the dice to try to get a son, and God blessed us. And uh, now I have a four-year-old son named Remington. And so as I think about the last 10 years of my life, uh, God has been crazy faithful to Molly and I. Through job changes, having children, learning how to love each other in the gospel, ministry changes, we've gone through some really good and great times, and we've also gone through some really dark and hard times. But he has, has continually just been faithful to us. And it's interesting to process because the more time that Molly and I have spent together over the last 10 years, a couple things have happened. The more we've learned about each other, the deeper our love has grown for one another. And, you know, on our wedding day, I legitimately thought there's no way that I could love this woman more than I do in this moment. But man, was I wrong. And it's interesting to process because our love for each other has grown through good times, through painful times, through suffering through sin, and through living in community. We've had to forgive each other. We've had to comfort one another. We've had to pray for one another. And all the while, God has been knitting our hearts together more than I could have ever imagined. And, and we've gotten, in our time together, we've gotten a deeper picture of who we truly are and who the other person is. And that's what I love about the Gospel of John. That all that you guys have been studying as a church for quite some time, in this gospel, John is painting a beautiful and historical and an accurate picture of who Jesus is. That's what we get in the gospel of John. And as you all know, the book of John was, was written by not just an eyewitness of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but John was literally one of Jesus' best friends. John was, he was in the inner circle with Jesus. He was a disciple and he was a friend. You know, these men, they did life together. And John tells us really clearly that the purpose of him writing this gospel was that you might get a picture of who Jesus is. And as you see this picture of Jesus unfold, that you might be given faith to know him, to love him, and to follow him. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, what you don't need from me is to write out a list of behaviors that look Christian and for me to give those to you so that you can clean yourself up and have a list of of to-dos for your life. That's not what you need from me. If you're not a follower of Jesus, what you need is what John provides in the Gospel of John. It's a clear picture of Jesus. It's an historic picture of who he is and what he's done and literally how his life, Jesus' life, is the most important, unique life in the history of the world. What his death means for humanity. What his resurrection means for humanity. And as you get this picture of Jesus, we're asking God the Holy Spirit to show you Jesus and to give you a deep love for him. That's what you need this morning if you're not a follower of Jesus. And here's what's really interesting. For those of you that are Christians or who consider yourself followers of Jesus, you're wrestling with sin. You want to mature in your walk with him. You want to love your wife and your kids and your family. You want to love your neighbors. You want to continue following Jesus for the rest of the life. You want to finish well. And what you need is actually the exact same thing. 
what you need as a follower of Jesus to grow in sanctification, to mature as a worshiper, to delight in God and hate sin, and to love your neighbor and work for the good of those in your towns is a clear, accurate, historical picture of Jesus. And so we need the same things, right? We need a clear picture of Jesus. So for those of us who are following and those who aren't, we need the same thing. And John's gospel is beautiful because it paints a really clear picture of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and what we need more than anything else is to know and see who he really is. So in John chapter 18, we're going to see John this morning moving into the heart of the mystery of Christ. And this is the crux of the good news of Jesus. If John didn't take us into chapter 18 and then ultimately through chapter 21, we would miss Jesus' betrayal, which is what we're talking about this morning. We would miss his rejection. We would miss the torment and the mocking that he went through. We would miss, miss his, his death on a cross. If John doesn't take us into the reality of a tomb that Jesus' body was physically laid in, and if he doesn't take us into the resurrection, that's really not good news for anybody. He's got to take us there. If John leaves out chapters 18 through 21, this picture of Jesus really isn't good news for us. Because if Jesus, like some people thought in his day, was just another prophet, that's not good news for our souls. Prophets can point us to God and they can point out our sin, but they can't change our hearts. If Jesus is just another prophet who came to say, God's like this, and you're as a person like this, it's really not good news. In addition, if Jesus is, is just a good teacher, that's not great news either. Many of my non-Christian friends believe that Jesus lived, that he was a good guy, that he was another good teacher. And here's what we have to see. If Jesus was just a good teacher, that's actually not really good news for us. Because a teacher that taught about the radical ethic of God's kingdom like Jesus would only add a bunch of tasks to your life that you actually can't live up to. The Sermon on the Mount is actually a great example of this. Have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount and walked away thinking, oh yeah, I can do all of that. Sure, I'm going to lay down my life for my enemies. Yep, did that yesterday. No, we don't read the, the, the Sermon on the Mount in that way. If Jesus is just another good teacher, that's not good news because it's just stacking more and more stuff on our plates that we can't live up to unless we've met him and he's changed our hearts. In addition, if Jesus was just a miracle worker, some people may think he's just a miracle worker. That's not good news because you know what happened to all the people who received a miracle in the first century? They died. They died. Has anyone ever met a person that ate a meal with Jesus where he multiplied fish and bread to thousands? No, none of us have because all the people who received a miracle from Jesus died. These miracles point to Jesus' divinity but he has to be more than just a miracle worker. Lastly, if Jesus is just a good example to follow, that's not good news. And, and actually, that might be the worst news of all. If Jesus only lived a holy, sinless life and he loved people well, he was a safe place for people who lived on the margins of society, that's not good news. If, if his life is just a good example for us to follow, it's the worst news because it's just another finger pointing at us saying that we don't stack up. So what John does in chapter 18 is he takes us beyond Jesus being another good teacher, 
beyond him being another prophet or a miracle worker or an example to follow, which he was all of those things. Don't, don't miss that. But he takes us to the very heart of the gospel that Jesus is Savior. He's more than all of those things. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just an example to follow, but Jesus came for a purpose, and he is our Savior. So let's dive into the text. The first thing that we see this morning about Jesus as we seek to get a really clear picture of who he is, is that Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control. John chapter 18, 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who was one of his disciples, betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing, he knew all that would happen to him came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them some profound words. He said, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there. In this moment, Jesus is the one who goes to the very place where Judas, his disciple who's betrayed him, knows he will be so that he can be arrested. This is no accident. This is no accident. Jesus is the one working with the Jewish officials in such a way that he can guarantee his arrest in this moment. He's the one who's actually going to relate in a few verses to Pilate in such a way where he doesn't get off the hook. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's in control in even this seemingly dark moment of betrayal. In the midst of this moment, Jesus is not a helpless victim or a martyr that this, that this is just happening to. Though he's 100% human, he's also God in the flesh, and he's working all these details of history together because he knows he has to go to the cross to accomplish something beautiful. And what he's accomplishing is redemption for those who are his. And so I want to get really practical for a moment. This is true, that Jesus can be a light, that he, he can be in control in a moment that seems helpless and dark. If Jesus can be in control in this kind of situation, dealing with apostate religious leaders, and he's dealing with greedy disciples, and he's, he's dealing with Roman soldiers who are, who are violent and even blind to who he is, he's dealing with friends that are denying him. If Jesus can work in that kind of chaos, track with me, do you think Paul wasn't lying in Romans 8 when he says, God is working all things together for good for you? Does that make sense? You tracking, you tracking with me? And maybe if you were one of the disciples there in this moment 2,000 years ago, do you think you would have known exactly what Jesus was doing by allowing himself to be arrested? Or maybe would you have thought and felt that darkness was winning in the moment? Here's Jesus, this guy you've been with. You've been walking with him for three years. He says he's God. You're processing all of that. And in this moment, it seems dark. Maybe that's where I would have been if I was one of the disciples there thinking in that moment that darkness was winning. And yet in this moment, Jesus is actually working in the darkness to begin to accomplish redemption that his light is going to shine through. So I know that in a room this size with this many people, there's a lot of us, if not all of us, are going through some really difficult things. There are things in our lives that are hard. 
Maybe some of us are sick. We're battling sickness. Maybe we have loved ones battling sickness. Maybe marriages are on the rocks. Maybe you're wrestling with doubt. Maybe you're wrestling with God's goodness in your own life. Maybe you're struggling as a parent. I know that I am. Or maybe you're struggling with work and finances. It could be a whole list of things. But what I do know is even though I can't figure out exactly how God is bringing redemption and hope into every difficult circumstance, I know this, that he can't lie. And what he's told us is that if you know him, are called according to his purpose, if you follow Jesus, even in the darkest moments, he's actually working to accomplish something that's, that's beautiful and rich, that's good for you, that's going to ultimately show off his glory. And just like he worked in the darkness of this moment, this night of betrayal, Jesus can work in the darkness of our lives as well. In 2017, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. It was, a super, it was a super dark day for her. It was a super dark day for me. It was a super dark day for our family. And I remember sitting in the doctor's office with her when she, when she heard the news. And both of our hearts just dropped because the prognosis was, was not promising. It was a really aggressive form of cancer. And at that point in my mom's life, she hadn't trusted in Jesus, but she was, she was on the search for truth. Her diagnosis caused her to begin searching even harder. And I had been praying for her to know Jesus ever since I had, I had started following Jesus when I was in college. I'll never forget the moment when my mom put her faith in Jesus. We were, excuse me, we were together in her hospital room post-surgery a few months after her diagnosis. For me, it was, it was a, an absolute memorial stone moment in my walk with Jesus. Because God in that moment revealed to her Jesus and what he's done for her. And she prayed one of the most beautiful prayers I had ever heard, confessing her sin to God, wanting to repent and wanting to follow Jesus. You know, that moment was really dark. But God was working through even the darkness to bring redemption into my mom's life. And I think that's what God wants me to share with you guys today. That even in the darkest moments and the difficulties of your life, God is working and moving, and shaping, and changing. And Jesus, in the, in the darkest moments, and we may not understand why certain things are happening, but we can trust that Jesus is in control. Because he's in control even in this chaotic night of betrayal. The second thing I think we see from our text this morning is that Jesus' glory is on display. Jesus' glory is on display, verses 6 through 8. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Did you hear that? They, they fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. So this band of Roman soldiers, and some scholars think it could have been hundreds of soldiers that came to arrest Jesus. These religious leaders in Judas who was his disciple who has betrayed him, come to Jesus and he initiates with them and he says, who do you, whom do you seek? And his response in the English Standard Version translation or maybe one of the translations that you have says, I am he. But if we were looking at a Greek translation, it would simply say, I am. I am. Jesus in this moment is pointing to the reality that yes, he's a carpenter, Yes, he's a human being. Yes, he's experienced temptation. And yes, 
He is God. I am God in the flesh. He is the I am that has existed for all eternity, that created all things out of nothing. And so here's what happens. He says to these men, I am, and they fall on their faces. These aren't men who have come to seek Jesus, to know more about him. They've come to literally betray him and arrest him, and they fall on their faces. They're saying, in essence, what they're communicating is, Jesus, we're going to beat you, we're going to lie about you, we're going to do a mock trial, then we're going to see you crucified, and then we're going to gamble for your clothes. But right now, let's try laying on the ground and show you some reverence. That's not, that's not what was happening. Absolutely not. Here's what happens. For just a second, somehow, Jesus' glory, and how I would define that is, is his glory is the weight of who he is, the magnitude, the scope of who he is, the God-man comes out, just for a moment. And these men, he proclaims who he is to these people, and they fall on their faces. They hit the deck like dead men. This is what happens throughout the scriptures when people see the glory of God. Whether God's glory is being reflected through an angel or someone sees God directly, this, we see this happening over and over. They're filled with holy fear and they fall to the ground. Even really righteous guys like Isaiah get a glimpse of God's glory and he falls to the ground and says this in Isaiah 6.5, Woe to me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And Jesus' own buddy, John, who's writing this, is going to get a glimpse of Jesus in his glory in the book of Revelation. And his response is, I better pretend to be dead, and he falls to the ground. Likewise, Ezekiel sees the glory of God and falls down. Daniel sees the glory of God and falls down. A guy named Saul, better known as the Apostle Paul, sees a glimpse of the glory of Jesus and he gets knocked off his donkey and falls to the ground. Here's what's happening, I think, in this text. This is a reminder that Jesus is not just another human being. That he came to, he didn't come just to do some good things or he's not a victim of the political system. This is actually the God-man. This is the God who took on flesh so that he could make himself vulnerable, so that he could defeat sin, Satan, and death for you and I, for those who are his, his sons and his daughters. And his glory is so rich and his glory is so real that when people get a glimpse of him, they fall to the ground. They, they fall on their faces. And Jesus' glory is on display in this moment in our text. Have you ever considered... Consider this with me. Have you ever considered that it's a miracle that any of us are saved from our sin? It's, it's a miracle that God moves towards us, that he saves us even in our sin. R.C. Sproul, one of, one of my favorite pastors and authors, says this. He says, God doesn't just throw a life preserver to a drowning person. He goes to the bottom of the sea and he pulls a corpse from the bottom of the sea. He takes him up on the bank. He breathes into them the breath of life and makes him alive. God's glory and love are on display in our salvation. When I think about some of the ways that God has worked and moved in my life over the years, I'm captivated by his glory. And many times it brings me to my knees in prayer to thank him. God has given faith to some of my closest friends. He's given faith to one of my children. He's given faith to my mother. 
one of my neighbors, people in my community group. You know, I see God's glory in creation. I see God's glory in childbirth. I see God's glory in my wife and how he's shaping and molding and changing her. I see God's glory in our church. His glory and his magnitude are changing lives. His glory is changing families and towns and cities all across the globe. His glory is on display. And I would challenge you this morning to, to ask yourself this question. How is God's glory on display in your own life? Where are you seeing God do some amazing things? Where is he doing some amazing works? Where is his glory on display in your own life? The third thing we see in our text today is that Jesus willingly gives himself up for others. Jesus willingly gives himself up for others. Verses 8 through 11, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men, my disciples, go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? In this moment, Peter goes Rambo on Malchus. Forgetting everything that Jesus said about his kingdom. It's not a kingdom of this world that he has to go to a cross. Peter knows, throws all of that out and thinks he has to protect Jesus in this moment. And Jesus' response, Jesus's response to Peter is really powerful. He says, Peter, put your sword away. Should I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And here's the deal. The cross of Jesus is not an afterthought. In fact, somehow, and I'm not sure that I fully get this, but the cross of Jesus was the predetermined plan of God even before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. This is what God's been doing even before Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created everything out of nothing. The cross is the center of history. And the cross is the purpose for which Jesus came to earth. And that's why he tells Peter, should I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And in this moment, the cup serves as a metaphor. It's a metaphor, metaphor for his upcoming death, and it symbolizes God's wrath. And note that the cup given to Jesus is from the Father, and Jesus is prepared to drink it. In addition to the physical suffering on the cross, Jesus was going to suffer the agony of bearing God's wrath, which was poured out on him as a substitute sacrifice and a payment for our sin. You know, many times throughout the gospel, John uses this phrase, and he quotes Jesus saying, my hour's not yet come, my hour's not yet come, my hour's not yet come. And then in chapter 17 that you guys dived into last week, he says, now my hour is here, and he's talking about the very purpose for which he came, for which he took on flesh. And that truth is that Jesus came to die. He came to die so that people like you and me could know how much grace and love God has for us. And in this moment, Jesus is telling Peter, this is my purpose. This is why I'm here. Friends, this is why if we leave out this part of the gospel, chapters 18 through 21, we don't actually have the gospel at all. This is why John chapters 18 through, 18 through 21 are so vital. In Jesus we could have a great prophet, we could have an example to follow, a miracle worker, a good teacher, but in this moment where he begins to accomplish salvation for humanity, 
by taking on our sin, drinking the cup of wrath that we deserve so that we could be counted as righteous in God's eyes. And then Jesus' track record of perfect sinlessness can become ours. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, through God's grace that we don't earn, we are cleansed and become a part of God's family. And in this moment, we see Jesus protecting his flock. He said, since I'm the one you seek, let these men, let my disciples go. And he actually fulfills what he prayed in John chapter 17, that he wasn't going to lose one of them. And remember, this, is a, this text is a dark moment for Jesus. He's feeling the weight of what's about to happen to him. He's about to be tortured and crucified. And at the same time, this is crazy to me, he's thinking, I want to shepherd and pastor my friends because I don't want them to be arrested and I don't want them to have to go through what I'm about to go through. I don't want my disciples to face more in this moment that they can bear. And Jesus knows that someday John is going to be persecuted and that Peter is going to be crucified upside down on a cross. But right now, they're not ready. They're not ready. And he's protecting them. He's sheltering them. He's, he's pastoring them in this moment. Friends, Jesus is a protector for us as well. He protects us. For those that trust and follow Jesus, he's purchased our life by giving his. He's paid for our sin, a debt that we couldn't pay ourselves. His sacrifice and grace is sufficient for us. And praise God, praise God, that's true this morning. That's why we've gathered here. That's why we sing songs and we confess our sins together because Jesus has purchased our salvations for us and he offers, them, he offers it as a free gift. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, which is so true of, my heart, of me. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. In these short 11 verses, we learn so much about Jesus. We get a, a deeper picture of who he is, that he's in control, that even in the darkest moments, that he is in control, that his glory is on display in all of our lives, and his glory is on display all around us, and that he gives his life for us. We need these pictures of Jesus and all the other truths of Jesus in the scriptures. We need these. We need them in our hearts and we need them in our minds so that when everything goes black in our lives, when we, when we come across a really hard and difficult day or circumstance, we're not grasping for something to be our North Star. We need these truths in our heart and in our minds. If you don't consider yourself a Christian this morning, what you need is just a clear picture of who Jesus is. And that's what John was, has provided in this gospel. And so I'm so grateful that you guys have been studying this book over the last year or more. Uh, God really used the gospel of John in my life while I was in college to draw me to himself and save me. And so I would encourage you, if you're not a follower, to, to read this gospel to study it, to ask questions. Please ask questions. I know there are people in this room who would love to have conversations with you, who would love to try to step in and answer any of the questions that you have. Please don't be afraid to ask. And as you get this picture of Jesus, 
I pray that God would give you a deeper and deeper desire to know him and that you would understand the grace and love that God has for you in in Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want to call you back. And I want to remind you of the simplicity of what it means to be a Christian. It means that you believe and you follow Jesus. That he is the very foundation of your life. That you're building your life on him and not around him. That you're building your life on him and not trying to fit your life in and around him. He's the hope of your life. He's the righteousness of your life. He's given us the most gracious gift in the history of the world. He hasn't given us man-centered religion. And what I mean by that is, what I mean is that you don't come and just clean your life up and act right and stop sinning and then he'll accept you. He has first loved us by giving us the gift of salvation for free. It's a free gift. And we walk with Jesus for the rest of our lives and we obey Jesus because he's first loved us. Not because we have to come and clean ourselves up and just have a to-do list and follow that. We walk with him and obey him because he's the one who has laid his life down for us. And I'll close with this last verse, Romans 5.8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Pray with me. Jesus, I thank you for my friends in this room. I thank you for some of the stories that I've gotten to hear since coming into town. And God, I just, I pray that you would meet my, my friends, my brothers and sisters this morning. And for those who are, who are processing where they're at with Jesus and what they think about Jesus, I pray that you would meet them in profound ways this morning. And God, you would help us to have a, a clear picture of Jesus that even in the darkest of moments, God, you would call us back and remind us of who Jesus is, that, that he is indeed the God-man who is in control of our lives and everything, the circumstances of our lives. That if we would look around and, and try to lift our heads up and Holy Spirit, give us the strength to do that, that we would see your glory, God, on display all around us. And God, I pray that we would just constantly and daily be reminded that Jesus has given his life for us and we can trust that is historic, that is, that is accurate and true because of this gospel that God has graciously given us that unpacks who Jesus is, what he's done, and what his life is about. God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, hey, as the body of Christ this morning, we want to celebrate. We want to celebrate the truth that we've just procl- we've been proclaiming and singing this morning. We want to remember and celebrate God's love that we have experienced through Jesus by the meal of communion. And this is a profound meal this morning. This isn't just something that we kind of go through the motions with. I mean, this really is a profound meal. And communion for us this morning, it's an act of worship and it's an act of obedience where through partaking of the bread and the wine or juice, we memorialize the death of Jesus our Savior, and we in turn look and anticipate His second coming. And so if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I invite you to take this meal as a remembrance of Jesus, Jesus' broken body and shed blood on our behalf.
And if you're not a follower of Christ, I, this meal is not going to help you. But what I would encourage you to do is to come to Jesus himself. So if that happens through a conversation with someone in this room afterwards, I would encourage you to have that conversation. But if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, I want to invite you to come and partake in this meal. So in this moment, let's come forward and receive the elements together.